Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another pirate station We bring the truth to places No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am STD Noor. Some of you may know that we were planning to do a show today about the January 6th hearings. We will do that show next week, and by then there will be more hearings. We have pivoted, though, to talking about the ruling by the Supreme Court of the United States regarding Roe v. Wade and um, also other uh, decisions that have come and that are likely to come. We are having a two-part show today. We will be talking later about the wider implications of uh, the Supreme Court and its decisions. That conversation will be, will be with Professor Howard Schweber of uh, UW-Madison, but we are Starting with another UW professor, Tiffany Green is assistant professor at the departments of population, health sciences, and obstetrics and gynecology at the School of Medicine and Public Health at UW-Madison. Thank you uh, very much, Professor Green, for joining us. How will this decision affect uh, maternal and child health, especially for people of color? Well, thank you for having me. And I want to clarify that, of course, these are my thoughts and not that of the School of Medicines or the university. But I can tell you what we know from the literature. And what we know is that uh, abortion uh, restrictions and bans, we've had a preview. And we know that they can impact um, rates of preterm birth. Um, low birth weight. Um, there's also some um, evidence that it can affect uh, maternal morbidity. So people who are pregnant um, having complications, right? And so ultimately, there's been some work that also predicts that we will see a rise in pregnancy-related mortality. And of course, we know that Black pregnant people have the highest preg- uh, pregnancy-related mortality rates in the United States, and it's projected that they will uh, suffer disproportionately from these abortions. Can you explain how uh, pregnancy complications will be affected by this ruling? Sure. Go ahead. I want to make sure that there's uh, reasons for abortion, but the reality is when you keep people in abortion, of those people are going to have complications and are likely going to be sicker or not have the resources to be able to carry a healthy a healthy pregnancy to term and so those people are going to be forced to give birth and because of that we're going to see a rise in pregnancy related complications and outcomes such as preterm birth and low birth weight Mm-hmm. What about um, people who um, have a miscarriage? Um, what, what, how will this ruling affect them? I think, I think you know, I want to just really emphasize to people that although people, there are a lot of people in the United States that have been living in a post-real world already. And we've already seen people that have miscarriages, particularly pregnant people of color, are being prosecuted. And particularly when, when there is substance use involved. Um, Wisconsin has a statute, Act 292, that allows the state to prosecute pregnant people or, or exercise other um, punitive measures if they believe that the fetus is in danger. 
Yeah, and, and that has actually happened in other states already, hasn't it? Absolutely. And I think this is even, this is even more problematic that be, because of structural inequality, including poverty and racism, black pregnant people are, are less likely to be able to carry a pregnancy to term. So you already have the, have the, the issue that, that pe- pregnant people of color are, are disproportionately likely to have miscarriages. And then now we have a situation where um, all, it seems that all bets are off when it comes to, um, to protecting pregnant people who, who have these miscarriages. That's a problem. And if the past is prologue, we know that those of color are more likely to be identified and prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, I was done. Okay, so like like you said, um, there are a lot of people who are already living in this country in a uh, post-Roe v. Wade uh, world um, where the states have uh, prohibited abortion and um, so on, and um, there's... In addition to that, there's uh, no exception, no exceptions in in the ruling um, today for uh, rape or incest. What 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 are your thoughts about that? Um, I think it's very consistent with uh, prior prior positions held by um, anti-choice groups that they do many do not believe in exceptions for for rape or incest, and I think. What I, what I, without again, without adjudicating people's reasons for having abortions, think about how hard, think about the trauma, or or how hard it can be to prove sexual assault in court. So we we are placing that burden upon. Well, we're we're having well, sorry, some it's a little bit of emergency alert. Yeah, hello. Can you hear oh, me? Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, we keep having some issues with your phone, alert. so it's yeah. an emergency alert. Okay, yeah, if you want to repeat what you were saying. Yeah, so, so, so again, like these exceptions for rape or incest, remember those are things that you have to prove to the satisfaction of a decision maker, right? We already have a scenario where Medicaid will not cover abortions uh, due to, uh, except those due to rape or incest under the auspices of the Hyde Amendment. This has been this has been in a statute for decades, right? So, so this idea, I think people, this idea that you can't get an abortion unless you have uh, unless you have rape or incest. I think we've shown today that that was always a fool's game uh, in terms of pinning our, our our hopes that there would be always be exceptions for rape or incest, as we see with what has happened in Wisconsin today. So, Wisconsin. Wisconsin does not have that exception, does it? The exception is that if the life of the pregnant person is deemed to be in danger. Yeah, which, um, again, the people who are living in uh, post-Roe places um, nowadays, um, we have seen some uh, deaths, haven't we? Um, due to um, difficult pregnancies and uh, miscarriages where, um, among other things, care providers are just not willing to help because they're afraid that they will be uh, sued for supporting abortion. Yeah, I think I think one thing that I would say, and, and I want to be clear that I'm not a lawyer, which is why I work with legal experts and those who have legal expertise. But one of the mm-hmm. challenges that we have here is that there's so much uncertainty right now. You know, we're we seem to be in a state of legal uncertainty, and we know that all providers in Wisconsin have stopped providing abortions as of the ruling this morning, right? So I, I really want to emphasize the role of uncertainty here, as you mentioned. That you know, doctors don't know in in various states whether they'll be prosecuted for providing providing abortion, and it's that state of uncertainty that's also going to contribute to lack of access to to reproductive health care. Yeah. So um, 
this whole decision came from the um, um, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Mm -hmm. And um, the Jackson, Mississippi is a very uh, poor city and um, the women there, the women in places like Jackson, Mississippi, are not um, going to be able, or you know, many of them are likely not to be able to take advantage of uh, things that um, others might be able to, like going to another state or going to Mexico or getting an abortion pill, are they? And, and, and what are the implications of that again? Um, I think, you know, I think here you, you point to something really critical, which is that people with resources almost always will be able to access abortions. If people from marginalized groups, uh, pregnant people that are black and brown, people that are poor, and of course those things can intersect, people that are disabled, and of course uh, trans folks and non-binary folks, they are going to be the ones that are challenged with getting, um, getting abortions, right? And it's always been that way, right? States have been putting in uh, legal barriers to abortions for quite a long time. Right, whether it's mandatory waiting periods, whether it's um, targeted regulations of abortion providers, states have been putting roadblocks um, to abortions for a very, very long time, and these barriers are going to continue to be even more relevant now that both Roe and Casey have been gutted. Yeah. So um, let's talk, though, briefly about these um, alternatives that I mentioned, abortion pills, um, traveling to another state, traveling to Mexico, if you can afford it. Um, how will, will that how significant will that be for people who are pregnant? Well, I think it will be significant for people that are pregnant that can access those options, right? You know, there are, there are a lot of pregnant people that simply are not going to be able to access those options. And we are, we are essentially forcing them to give birth. Not essentially, we are forcing them to give birth. Um, and and I, the issue is that people that want access to uh, medical care are not going to be able to access that care in a timely manner, or at all. You know, there's something um, that that really is um, bewildering to me about um, forcing women to have children, and like we've been saying, especially forcing uh, women of color to have more children, while at the same time, these are the very people who um uh shutting down any kind of support for uh for mothers for for families and even more so for families of color um i, I don't want to go too far but um i wonder if you see some racist aspect to overturning row or, or how do you understand this um weirdness that I'm posing here? Well, I mean, what I can say, um, I can't speak to the racism um, that's overturning Roe, but I can tell you that it will, it will have, it, it almost certainly will have a disproportionate impact on pregnant people of color. And, um, you know, and it's going to disproportionately increase uh, black pregnancy-related mortality. It's going to disproportionately increase, most likely, um, poor birth outcomes among people of color. So regardless of intent, the impact will, will still be the same. Yeah, yeah, good point. Well, Tiffany Green, Assistant Professor of the Departments of Population Health Sciences and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the School of Medicine and Public Health at UW-Madison. Thank you so much for uh, squeezing us in between all your meetings today. I really appreciate that. You're, you're very bye -bye. welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye.
And uh, we will be listening now to a little bit of audio from uh, the rally on Wednesday regarding uh, Roe v. Wade and, and what was then still the uh, likely um, overturn. And then we will be getting to Howard Schweber to look at the larger implications. Here we go. Chanted in the Wisconsin State Capitol building this morning during the special legislative session to attempt to repeal Wisconsin's 172-year-old abortion law. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. It is our duty to win. We must love one another and protect one another. We must love one another and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Planned Parenthood led the rally along with a speaking event where Tara Stangler, a campus leader at University of Wisconsin, kicked it off with a discussion of representation of BIPOC and queer people in the conversation of reproductive rights. Everyone is included in our, not just white folks, not just affluent folks. It is everyone. So the minute they come for any of us, they're coming for all of us. This is not just a you versus them. This is an us versus them. And we have to stop thinking about it from an individualistic standpoint. If you're going to stand here and look me in my face and say it is our duty to fight for our freedom, then that counts for everybody's freedom, not just yours. Darlene Johns, the democracy organizer at Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, or BLOC, expanded on BIPOC and queer representation. Johns also spoke on the lack of systemic support to help pregnant people who need medical care. And understand that this is everybody's issue because we don't have the infrastructure to support the ban that they're proposing. And it's a ban that they, largely, they, the Supreme Court, largely will not be subject to because they got the ducats, they got the dollars to do what they want to do to help the people that they want to help. We don't got that. I don't have that. So continue to organize, continue to speak, and continue to be loud. Sarah Noble is a community advocate from Milwaukee and former executive director of the Reproductive Justice Collective. Noble talked about how abortion access intersects with the struggle for truly equitable rights. Black people and other people of color know all too well that our rights, the rights that exist, don't always apply to us. When rights don't apply to all individuals at all times, they are not rights. They are conditional benefits that have inequitably, have been inequitably distributed. So for us, not having abortion access care will have dire consequences. Black people and other people of color, including youth, disproportionately experience far too many health disparities. We don't need to experience more harm, like having to leave the state to access safe and legal abortion care. Tanya Atkinson is the president of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin. She ended the demonstration with a talk about love and the power it has within the movement for abortion access. Love is what keeps us moving forward when we are so angry that a minority holds power and they hoard power. Taking away the bodily agency and autonomy for millions across our nation and right here in our state of Wisconsin. Love is what energizes us to get up after we have our moments on our knees sobbing in pain and disbelief because we know the irreparable harm that will be caused if abortion is not safe and legal. Abortion does not go away. It becomes unsafe. Love is what compelled us to be here today with each other in this moment to demand a different future for Wisconsin, for our friends, our families, our neighbors. Love is what gives us the courage to speak from the rooftops that everybody deserves access to abortion, regardless of their reason or their race or their gender or their sexual orientation or their income level or their immigration status. Planned Parenthood has stopped scheduling appointments past this Saturday, June 25th. That's in anticipation of the expected decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in the coming days. But Atkinson says they'll still be assisting people in need of a safe abortion. We have relationships with the other states. We can help provide care on the front end. We can help people navigate to other states and access a safe and legal abortion. And we can be here for the people of Wisconsin who need an abortion when they come back home again. So we, we really encourage people, if you need an abortion, to please reach out to Planned Parenthood Wisconsin and we can help you. Planned Parenthood plans to distribute Make-A-Plan pregnancy kits throughout the summer. 
The kits include emergency contraception, condoms, a pregnancy test, and more information on the threats to abortion access. Patients can receive a kit by visiting Planned Parenthood or making an appointment. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter. And uh, we are back, and with us now is Howard Schweber, Professor of American Politics and Political Theory in the UW-Madison Department of Political Science and an affiliate faculty member of the law school, the law school's legal studies program and integrated liberal studies. Thank you very much, uh, Howard. Uh, you too for uh, joining us last minute. Um, let's start with your thoughts about um, the discussion that I just had with Professor Green. Sure. Um, so Professor, Professor Green was focusing on the public health consequences and the personal freedom consequences of overruling Roe and permitting states to ban abortion. And I think she really captured the main points um, quite nicely. Even in the days long before Roe, it was always the case that wealthy people were able to procure abortions. The effect of criminalization in practice um, falls, the burden falls by far most heavily on poor people. And in this country, that means disproportionately uh, people of color. But of course, there are the majority of poor people in America are in fact white, uh, rural whites to be specific. So we should not lose sight of the fact uh, this is not a racial issue per se. Um, the burdens will fall disproportionately on people of color, uh, but this affects everybody except those with sufficient wealth and mobility to be able to escape the effects of state laws. Mm -hmm. You also um, commented here on our um, chat about the use of the word people, which I um, I, I know it's, it's big and I don't want to get really deeply into it, but it's something that has been disturbing me too. Um, but um, I don't know. It's uh, the the diktat has come from on high that we're not talking about uh, pregnant people, and we we've had a discussion right here on um, on our chat. But anything you want to say about that briefly? Well, only to put this in the context of the legal discussion. Uh, I wasn't making a philosophical point. I was talking about the specific consequences for purposes of what kinds of legal arguments are available. Let me back up a minute. In the whole series of cases that created or recognized constitutional rights for LGBTQ plus persons, uh, Lawrence versus Texas, Obergefell versus Hodges, these are the cases that decriminalized sodomy and that recognized same-sex marriage. In all of those cases, there were attempts to get the court to deal with these questions on the basis of equal protection, that not allowing, for example, same-sex couples to marry violated their right to equal protection under the law. The court never took up that, that mandate. Uh, Justice Kennedy wrote all of the key opinions in this area, and he steadfastly refused to make this an equal protection argument. The court has done the same thing, it was Alito who wrote the opinion, with respect to the claim that bans on abortion discriminate on the basis of sex. And his phrase was, no, no, this is not in any way about um, doing something to women, it's doing something to persons who happen to be pregnant. So the idea that the pregnancy uh, or the possibility of pregnancy or abortion is somehow separable from gender or from sex in a legal context has been one of the more unpersuasive, let's say, or, or transparently unpersuasive moves that the court has made. What makes the, the, the political or philosophical discussion more complicated uh, is that, of course, the only reason that that's a problem legally is because the way the Equal Protection Clause has been understood is in terms of very traditional, cisgendered, biologically determinist notion of what is gender. If we could imagine a court that would treat the Equal Protection Clause more fluidly than that, this wouldn't be a problem. But given that that's how equal protection law works, um, there's actually a potential difficulty that arises uh, in the sense that if we want to preserve the possibility of an equal protection argument, which is not the only kind of argument that there can be. Let me be clear about that. But it's always been thought of as one of the most promising ones. Uh, in order to preserve that argument, um, it becomes very complicated to simultaneously, within the existing constitutional doctrine, which I'm not embracing, I'm just reporting, uh, it becomes very difficult to make that an argument that extends to trans persons, for example. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. And um, I, I would ask our, our listeners not to start calling and arguing about that. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it sometime. And the whole um, issue of language that I've been giving a lot of um, attention to. Um, but uh, we want to stay um, in um, the discussion about basically the Supreme Court and its decisions. And um, so, so the Supreme Court just overturned Roe v. Wade and with it women's constitutional right to abortion. And that just today, after striking down a New York law that made it illegal to the law made it illegal to carry a firearm in public without showing a special need for protection. So now um, that that was also a sweeping uh, decision, I believe, uh, in support of the Second Amendment, at least the way the NRA and the right um, understands it. And and. Um, I would like you to talk about both of these together. And one one thing that I thought about immediately that um, both of these demonstrate, among other things, that the legacy of, of Trump's terrible years uh, are going to be with us for a very long time, regardless of uh, the political situation. Or, you know, that, of course, is a political situation. But regardless of who um, is the president, who is in Congress, and so on. C can you talk about that? Sure. I think you're exactly right to look at these two cases together, and there are others, but these are the two that are in the news this week, so let's stick with them. What unites them is not the specific issue, obviously, but the approach. Uh, what is most radical about the opinion in Dobbs is not that Roe was overturned, but how it was overturned. And so let me explain. Um, in both cases that you mentioned, both Bruin and Roe, uh, excuse me, Dobbs, um, the conservatives on the court took a position uh, that was is really, I don't know how else to put this, a kind of a caricature of originalism. Like all the bad things people who don't like originalism say about it, this is why. And specifically in both instances, they took the position that you have to look at the historical practice at the time of the adoption of the relevant constitutional amendment. You have to define the right you're talking about very specifically. So you can't say, was there a right to privacy? Or was there a right to keep the state out of couple's bedrooms or out of medical procedures or out of the relationship, any of those things, you have to say, was there a specifically recognized right to abortion? Or conversely, was there a specifically recognized authority of the states to ban specifically the carrying of firearms in public? And it's not enough in the case of the rights claim to say that the practice was accepted or tolerated. You have to show that it was historically considered a protected right. And on the gun side, it's not enough to show that, yes, there were lots of regulations of who could carry guns in public, historically going back to the medieval period and all and all the all of the period of European settlement in North America. All those settlements had these kinds, the colonies and so on, had these kinds of laws. But that's not enough. You would have to show that at the time the Second Amendment was adopted, there was a specific uh, recognized and accepted practice of legislation just like the ones in New York. And the point of all this is what this does. It's a mode of reasoning that makes it incredibly easy to reach any result that the court wants. You can, by cherry picking the historical record, uh, which is done extensively in both cases, uh, and simply ignoring the existence of contrary historical trends, and then by making this, this, this claim, uh, which is increasingly just unpersuasive, that no, no, we're not imposing our preferences, we're just following the history. What this does is it gives them essentially carte blanche to make drastic, and dramatic changes to the system of constitutional rights with which we're accustomed. In the Dobbs opinion, the justice who as always went the farthest was this was Thomas. Thomas called for abandoning all of what are called substantive due process rights and essentially going back to the 1870s and starting over. I don't expect the majority of the court to follow him in this. The majority opinion though raises a different question. And that is if the right to abortion is being written out of our understanding of the Constitution. What other asserted rights are in the chopping block? And here, Alito uh, was very. I I've heard him. I've heard the question asked: Was he trolling us? Um, but certainly, what he said was was very much open to interpretation. So, in his opinion, Alito says that 
the cases that came before Roe, on which the Roe court relied, so the cases protecting, for example, contraception, the right to contraception, uh, those cases are, are not open to question. This is what he asserted in the opinion. Thomas mm -hmm. called for those cases to be overruled right away. But Alito did not say the same thing about any of the cases that followed Roe. In other words, it's not at all clear that Lawrence and Obergefell in particular, these are, again, the cases establishing constitutional rights uh, to intimacy and to marriage for LGBTQ plus individuals. It is not at all clear that those cases are not open to being overruled, particularly given an extraordinary two and a half page footnote, it's footnote 48, in which Alito lists hundreds of instances in which the Supreme Court has overruled precedent, which is a not very subtly coded message that we're doing it now and we may do it again. So as you see it, is it uh, open season now on uh, many other um, laws that um, afford us what, um, what freedoms, what rights we have? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and again, let me let me talk about both cases, if I may, because both of these cases are going to spawn an enormous amount of litigation. On the abortion side, a lot of states already have laws in place. One of the strange things about American legal practice is that when a law is ruled unconstitutional, it doesn't go away. It just may not be enforced. If the law is then ruled constitutional again, enforcement can recommence. Wisconsin has an 1849 law making it a felony to perform an abortion. That law is in effect today. Yeah, uh, because it is no longer unconstitutional and it was never repealed. So in Wisconsin right now, it is a felony to perform an abortion because of this 1849 law that is still on the books. Uh, we're pretty much the only country that does things this way, but that's a whole different discussion. Mm -hmm. On the guns side, the opinion was full of ambiguities about sensitive places where regulation of guns might be permitted, about the distinction between concealed carry of weapons and open carry of weapons, all of which will be tested. So I am absolutely sure, if there's one thing I can be sure about, it's that states around the country will start passing laws banning abortion and start passing laws regulating guns, attempting to work around the guidelines that have just been announced by the court. And this will be a matter that goes back to the courts repeatedly to work out exactly what all this means in practice. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I heard you correctly earlier, you found some internal logic in uh, both of these, in, in the passing of both of these decisions. Uh, to me, looking at it not from a legal point of view, but from, you know, a yeah, humane point of view, um, I wonder about the notion of you being so-called pro-life, i.e. forcing women or people to have... Um, um, ch more children that, you know, regardless of, um, of your ability, your, um, um, your uh, financial situation and, and so on and so forth, but then um, making it even more possible that, for example, these babies or these children um, will be shot when they go to school. Will 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 die. You know. I mean, where? So so you know. I can't find that logic of what does poor life mean. They also support the death penalty and so on. Um, explain that to me if you can. <laughs> um, well, I think I can, but we need to separate the legal and the political. So in terms of what the court is doing, um, you're exactly right, but it's not so much that you've caught them doing something as you've named something that they're announcing very loudly that they're doing, which is that they do not think, this is what the, the, the Bruin opinion is in particular says, that's the gun case, sorry. Um, the, majority, the conservatives in the court do not think it is appropriate to ask policy questions or ask about human consequences or social economic consequences. They view themselves as engaged in a purely formalistic exercise. And the clearest example of that was a couple of weeks ago when they declared that the fact that someone who had received ineffective assistance of counsel is facing execution despite likely being innocent of the crime for which he was convicted does not create any grounds for a federal court to review his conviction. It's hard to be clearer than that about saying we don't care what the human consequences are. We're all about upholding the rules. 
But you asked about the pro-life movement, which is a political movement, of course, um, right, which, which operates on a different set of dimensions and principles. And the short answer, the shortest answer I can give, is that the pro-life movement is fundamentally religious. And I don't mean this in the sense that anyone who is pro-life necessarily is a religious believer or a member of a particular church or anything like that, although many of them are, obviously. But that the pro-life movement is based on a, a metaphysical principle about life uh, and about you know, not wanting to tolerate life being taken and giving that legal sanction. It is not the case, after all, that pro-life people are in favor of school shootings. Um, that's just, you know, that's absurd. They are in favor of people having guns, and they will make all kinds of elaborate arguments. Uh, those, that is, we think of a Venn diagram, those people who are pro-life who are also strong Second Amendment supporters, as, as we now say. Uh, how do they reconcile those two beliefs? Quite easy. Uh, they, they don't see them as comparable issues. They are in favor of all kinds of messages to try and protect children in schools, measures, uh, measures that I don't think would be remotely as effective as simply controlling guns, but they're certainly never going to say that we want to see children killed. So for them, again, it's less a matter of consequences and playing out the consequences of rule of a rule as to how it will operate in practice and more about first principles. And you declare your first principles and you stop there. And then you have to work around whatever the consequences are of those presumptions. That's the opposite of a kind of progressive, liberal, social science kind of approach that always asks, what are the consequences, right? What are the long-term effects? Uh, who will be affected and in what way? And that's the sense in which I mean it's a religious perspective rather than what you might think of as a scientific or social scientific perspective. It asks a different set of questions. So um, we have a caller that we'll get to in a moment, but I want to ask you another question first. Um, and that's the fact that the Supreme Court is not an elected body. And in this case, it is forcing the opinions and feelings and aspirations of the so-called pro-life movement, um, which are a minority on the majority. We, uh, we know from polls that more than two thirds of Americans favor uh, retaining Roe, 57% uh, affirm a woman's right to abortion for any reason. And to add to that, the people who are making these decisions, the people who were added to the court during the Trump years, are um, well put by Trump, who in hearings in um, recent weeks have uh, have learned uh, are learning more and more about the level of corruption and fascist thinking that he represents and and so here they are people who were put in place by him forcing their ideology um on on the rest of us what, what talk about that please well this is the classic expression of what's called the counter majoritarian problem how can it be legitimate to have an unelected supreme court make decisions that bind the majority and prevent questions from being decided democratically and of course for years and decades, that was the argument conservatives used against the Warren Court and the uh, Berger Court and courts that made more liberal decisions. So, for example, if the majority want to have uh, Christian prayers read aloud in school every day, how can an unelected court assert the authority to prevent them from doing that? It's a classic question. Um, it's a basic question of any higher law constitutional system, of course. In this instance, though, I think we have to be a little careful. Again, let's compare the gun case and the abortion case. The gun case that just came out says states may not pass laws preventing people from carrying guns around in public, except perhaps in some, it's not clear, but except perhaps in some special situations. That's a direct restriction on the democratic process. The abortion case only says states don't have to allow women to have abortions. And the question now goes to the state legislatures. Um, so you can say a great deal about that. But the conservatives on the court insist that precisely what they are doing um, is stepping back from the idea of an imperialist court that is not elected, taking over the democratic process and giving this important question back to the people to decide democratically. So their answer will be, well, look, if you're right about what the majority of the people want, that's what they'll vote for. And that's how things will come out in those states. The problem, of course, is twofold. One, the whole point of having a constitution is to set certain questions apart from ordinary democratic politics. There are certain questions we say cannot be decided by the majority, let alone by a minority, uh, by ordinary political means. And these are what we call rights, as well as basic structural provisions of government. 
And the second question, the second problem uh, with this discussion, perhaps, is that local majorities and national majorities are very different. There are a great number of states in which the majority of voters uh, are perfectly happy to see abortion banned and eager to see that happen. Uh, and they have elected politicians who are eager to see that happen. At the moment, this tends to be divided by political party. This is something that wasn't true before the late 1970s, but it has been for the last generation plus. Uh, so we're talking about the Republican Party, and the Republican base is strongly in favor of banning abortion. So the, the, you know, if this were a question of a national referendum, the polling data you're citing is unquestionably informative. But if we're talking within our federalist system about each state making its own political decisions based on a party system, including gerrymandering, including efforts at voter suppression, uh, including money in political campaigns, and all the other elements that cause our current democratic system to be wildly responsive uh, to majority views on a lot of questions, when you take all that into account, um, the, answer, the, 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 the answer is this is being turned over to the democratic process. It's just A, a democratic process that some people, including myself, think is desperately skewed uh, and distorted. Uh, and B, it's, been, it's a question that ought not to be turned to the democratic process because it involves constitutional rights. But we should recognize that the complaint of an unelected judiciary acting contrary to the will of the majority is precisely what the complaint has always been by political conservatives uh, with respect to uh, decisions giving rights to criminal suspects uh, or indeed Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Well, let's get to um, our caller, Anna, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for this uh, discussion. Um, I appreciate you, you uh, having this discussion today. Um, so like many others right now, I, um, I've been reading the Dobbs opinion and there's one, uh, I, I'd like to read a little bit of the opinion because it's been sticking in my head for the past couple of hours because it's so profoundly stupid. Um, I'm wondering if I could uh, read a little bit of that. Go ahead. Okay, so this is in uh, the, sec the summary, the section where the court is uh, writing that uh, abortion is not an entrenched right like, like it's decided before. Um, so here we go. <clears throat> Attempts to justify abortion through appeals to a broader right to autonomy and to define one's concept of existence prove too much. Those criteria at a high level, level of generality could license fundamental rights to elicit drug use, prostitution, and the like. And, uh, and it's just a couple sentences, but that has been sticking in my head, uh, sticking in my craw, because the reasoning is just so lazy. It, like I said, it's profound, and it really brings to mind that the justices are kind of watching Fox News, and, and you know, it's reflecting this puritanical attitude toward you know, abortion rather than, I don't know, like the hardest medical decision someone might make in their life. So I'm just wondering if your guests can kind of comment on that. Sure. Yeah, thank you for the question. Very good. Go ahead, Howard. Sorry. Uh, sure. Uh, it's actually less lazy and more malicious than you think uh, in, mm. in my reading. So let me back up a second. You recall I mentioned that one thing that combined, the, that it was consistent in the reasoning in the gun case and the abortion case, uh, Bruin and Dobbs, is this appeal to historical understanding of rights defined very specifically. There's a, when they want to, at least, this is what they do. It comes out of a case called Glucksburg, uh, which was the assisted suicide case from the late 80s. And the point of defining rights very specifically this way is to make it easy to say, ah, this right defined exactly this way is not historically rooted. Since it is not, or sufficiently historically rooted, since it is not historically rooted, we ought not to recognize it as a right. That is a direct response to Justice Kennedy, and especially that phrase you, you, you quoted, uh, defining one, the meaning of existence. Uh, one passage that conservative, legal conservatives hate is Justice Kennedy's uh, paragraph in Obergefell versus Hodges, where he, which is sometimes called the sweet mystery of life passage, uh, where he said is it is for each of us to define the meaning of our lives for ourselves and the government should not get in the way. So what Alito is doing here is taking a direct stab at Kennedy's legacy in those cases, which is yet another reason why I think those cases are on the chopping block going forward. Uh, because while you can define a general right to marry or a general right to have intimate relations, uh, it's very hard to, to say that 
Historically, at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, the specific right of same-sex couples to marry was regarded as constitutionally protected. If you frame the question that way, very specifically, very narrowly, and very historically, then it becomes very easy to say, oh, we were mistaken to recognize this right in the first place. So I think this is less intellectually lazy than you think, um, but more dangerous. It's an attempt to say that the entire approach that Justice Kennedy used and the court used to recognize rights of LGBTQ plus people uh, is misguided and is, you know, is, is the road to chaos. And that sounds very much like an introduction to a longer discussion which says, and therefore we're repealing those decisions. I don't know this obviously is coming, uh, but I, I think it is likely or at least entirely possible. I want to get back to that the the issue that I raised um, earlier. Again, thinking about the three uh, who were put in the um, Supreme Court during the Trump uh, reign. What might happen if the twenty twenty four elections are a repeat of twenty twenty with a loser insisting that he won? And uh, and again, you know, looking at the hearings, uh, which we'll be talking about next week, um, we learn that there's really no end to to the ways by which um, these folks are um, trying to make um, falsehood a reality. And now he has these three plus the others who are uh, basically in that same court. Are you concerned about um, what that means really for the future of elections in the country, for democracy per se? Are, are you concerned that we might uh, be looking at the fascist rule sometime in the relatively near future um, in the United States. Well, let's be clear, first of all, you don't mean fascist in its technical sense. You mean an authoritarian rule that has uh, no tolerance for those who... Do Actually, I probably mean both, but, you know, let's not, let's not argue about that. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean... <laughs> I don't. All right. Well, let me answer both ways then. Uh, no, I don't see the likelihood of, a, of America being taken over by a, a romantic nationalist movement that says participation in international war is the only way to prove the integrity of our society, and therefore we, we must seek out those conflicts whenever possible. I don't see that okay. uh, being a well-selling message, and that Fair was Bruce Lee's original theory of the term pache. Um On the other hand, I've deep, and even in a more broad sense of the term, I do not see America becoming fascist. I do very much see American democracy uh, failing. And, you know, there are a lot of steps in between what we might think of as a fully functioning democracy and outright fascism. There's a lot of room for very ugly stuff and very authoritarian stuff without having to throw that particular label around and worry and, and argue as we we're about to start arguing, right, exactly what it means. Uh, it's much easier to point out, and I don't think there's any dispute about it. Uh, I've already mentioned a few of the mechanisms that money in politics and gerrymandering uh, and voter suppression, all of which are practices that this Supreme Court has not only insisted are permissible, but has insisted that states and localities may not attempt to prevent. In, in, I, I want to be very clear on this point because I think it's extraordinarily important and, and flies under the radar because it's hard to get one's head around this. It is not just that the Roberts Court has repeatedly declared uh, that it's tolerable to have gerrymandering or that it's tolerable to have uh, dark money in politics or any of the other things that we're concerned about Starting way back with Justice Scalia and in an unbroken thread going forward, these justices have argued that the First Amendment requires that these practices be tolerated and accepted. So that even when states and localities want to do something to try and clean up their democracy and make the government more responsive, they're prevented from doing so. This, this Supreme Court is about to hear, uh, I don't think an opinion will come out this term, I think it will be next term that they'll rule, on something called the independent state legislature theory, which is just yet another piece uh, of, of saying that it is that the Constitution requires that we allow powerful interests to capture control of the government in ways that are profoundly undemocratic. And it is true. There is nothing in the Constitution that guarantees the right to vote. There's nothing in the Constitution that guarantees a democracy. These are all things that many of us believe in. Uh, but if you want to be a purely formalistic, lawyerly reader of the text, then you can say, as these guys have, um, there is no constitutional commitment to any particular politi democratic political form, and therefore even an outright authoritarian system of governance 
as long as it does not infringe on those rights that this court chooses to recognize, which is a very select list, is perfectly tolerable from a constitutional perspective. You mentioned that three of these justices came from Donald Trump's extraordinarily disastrous single term as president, and that's a great point. And it gets to a larger point, um, and I think some people are starting to think about this, which is, are we really well served by the system of life tenure of Supreme Court justices? Uh, are we well served by a system in which essentially by, forgive me, luck of the draw or mortality rates among elderly Supreme Court justices, one president who serves one term may appoint three justices, another president who serves two terms may appoint none. Uh, and of course, in each instance, it's increasingly in modern times the case that these justices are selected in order to promote an ideology favored by that president. In that you know, situation, are we well served? by the, the, the manner in which we select and appoint our Supreme Court justices. I'm one of a lot of people who think the answer is no, uh, who think that we something like 18-year terms uh, staggered so as to ensure that in any four-year term, a president gets to appoint one justice um, would be a vastly better solution, as would any number of other possible reforms. Um, but that's a, that's a more structural question and in some ways a bigger question the three justices you allude to are on the court through a, the procedure that was considered legitimate at the time. They will be there for a long time to come. There is no doubt in my mind, as a teacher of these subjects, I've wrestled for the last couple of years with the question of, is this Roberts Court a new constitutional regime? Is this a new you know, way of thinking about the Constitution? In the sense that every 50 or 70 or 80 years in American legal history, there are these large-scale changes. And my answer is yes. This is a, this is, we are seeing the beginning of the construction of a different version of the Constitution from the one that we've all been familiar with in our lifetime. Yeah. Well, we're uh, practically out of time, but in the last two minutes, um, what to do? How can we stem well, this uh, rise of authoritarianism? Well, I always come back to a single statistic, which is that in 2016, 20% of Trump voters said the single most important issue for them was the courts. Among Clinton voters, uh, it didn't even place in the top 10. Democratic voters for generations have ignored the courts, while conservative voters for generations have made it their mission to try and recapture the courts. This is the political success of a long-term strategy carried out carefully and meticulously at both the local and the national level, and the progressives and liberals and, and Democrats, you know, the, the other side of the political agenda uh, has largely been sleepwalking. Apparently, some people's attention has now been grabbed by, the, by, by this decision, these decisions this week. Um, it's a little late. If you're shocked by what's happening, you are not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Howard Schwaber, Professor of American Politics and Political Theory in the UW-Madison's Department of Political Science, affiliate faculty member of the law school. Sig the law school's, I would say, legal studies program, I believe is how it's supposed to say, and, and integrated liberal studies. Really appreciate you joining us last minute like that. Thank you so my, much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And thanks, as usual, to Richelle, Samer, and also to Charlie this time around. I'm Esti Dinor. Bye-bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level.